0: Got a Bible on you or one on your phone, why don't you pull it out now? Uh, otherwise, the words will appear behind me as I read. So let's just jump straight in and read God's word together. That's Luke 24, uh, verses 13 to 35. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He spoke to them. How foolish You are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. And he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. Life is full of. I get it moments, right? Moments in life where I get it, right? That kind of feeling comes over you. Right about now, there will be some sore legs, sore bodies, elated people setting PBs and battered egos as the very last finishers of the Belfast Marathon. I'm hoping there are people that were walking, right? Because if you're not walking, there's no excuse. But anyway, they're walking over the line right about now. The very last of them will be making their way over. Please, Lord, make them go over the line. And the thing is that most people who do any form of sport, right, you do any, whether it's football, rugby, running, you know, whatever it is you do, they aspire to do as their idols do, don't they? Most of you that, that kind of, that do any form of sport, sooner or later you think, I could do that, Right? Like, I remember when I was growing up, watching you know, United playing on TV, like watching Eric Cantona doing his thing on TV, and seconds after the match was over, running straight outside and attempting to do exactly what Eric Cantona had done. This normally led to the phrase which became famous in our house from my mum, which was like, Like, you know, as we put holes, as we smashed windows and put holes in hedges and all that sort of stuff, she would say, like, where do you think you're playing? Wembley? And I'm like, that's exactly where I think I'm playing, right? Because you aspire to do very often what your idols do. And runners do this too. One of my favorite videos on the internet of the last year was watching people attempt to run at the same pace as Elliot Kipchoge, right? I mention him because it's marathon day, right? Elliot Kipchoge is the marathon world record holder. You know, I'm not going to advise you to take your phones out and look at it now, but at some stage of today, you know, in a little moment, perhaps when you visit the loo later, right? Take your phone out and watch videos of people trying to run as fast as Elliot Kipchoge, okay? Elliot Kipchoge is the man Nike believe is the world's best bet to run a marathon distance in under 2 hours right under 2 hours 26 miles in under 2 hours right he thinks there's the best bets they've done all these sort of like madcap schemes controlled conditions special trainers people you know breaking the wind in front of him so that he can try and get under 2 hours because for forever people have said it's not possible And he very nearly did it, right? But that's control conditions. It just so happens, however, that in Berlin this year, he broke the world record running the marathon in 2.01.39, right? 2.01.39. That means that he ran the entire marathon distance at 4 minutes 38 per mile. The entire course. 4.38, 4.38, right? Now that sounds incredible, but the video is brilliant because one after the other after the other, people sized up this huge rolling treadmill and thought, I could do that. Looks all right. And then you see them get on, right? Jump on and literally get flung straight back off again. It's incredible, right? You need to see it. In fact, one of the people who got flung off was Mo Farah, which makes it even better, right? Farah gets on, weaked off the back of the travel eater thing, right? And it's their face when it happens, I get it, right? You look at the thing and you think, it's not that bad. And then you try to do it. Now I get it. And life is full of those sorts of moments, isn't it? You know, the sorts of moments that people usually a little bit older than you bang on about, okay? Like love, for instance, you know? Before you fall in love with someone, you talk about love and then it happens to you and you're like, oh, I get it. This thing has happened to me. I get it. Equally by the same token, breakups right anyone who's ever been in a horror breakup now I get why does it hurt so much right that feeling I get it or loss all of a sudden some part of you switches on to the hurt others around you have felt when you begin to feel it for yourself I get it I get it moments in life one of the ones that I heard lots and lots about was normally from women who were a little bit older than me before we had L. Okay, right before we had L, and it was people that would say, "Oh, you know, but but when you have your own kids, you're going to meet them and you're just going to instantly fall in love with them so much, and, and and you'll love them more than you thought you ever could." No. I don't know about you, but I feel like I have this hardwired thing inside me, which pushes back really hard whenever people tell me how I'm going to feel about something, right? So like people would say this to me over and over again, and inside I'm going, oh really? I'll show you. And what happened was, it started with this kind of like negative thing inside me, and then after a while, I honestly walked around with this like fear story going on in my head that was like, but what happens if the love thing doesn't happen? Like what happens if, you know, this child comes out and somebody hands me my own child and I'm like, uh, can we take it back? Like, what happens? I, I Honestly, I believe like, I was going to be the first person ever who did not fall in love with their child, okay? Like, they were going to hate me, I was going to hate them, and my life was essentially over. That's how I felt inside. And then in some fluorescent lit room in the Ulster Hospital at some awful time in the morning, I found myself with this little person up my t-shirt, right? Because they kind of do this skin-to-skin thing to keep them warm. I found myself with this little person up my t-shirt, keeping them warm at some awful, inconvenient hour of the morning, having just been through an experience, and something inside me went off like a thousand explosions, right? Like this thing you never knew could happen to you happened. Even though I kind of fought it. Even though I was like, it's not going to happen to me. Even though I was doing that, it did. And all of a sudden, I get it now. I get it. And the core message of the passage that we're reading today and we're digging into is the I get it writ large across the faces, across the lives of Cleopas and his companion that day as they finally discover that Jesus, it's really you. That's the spoiler of all the rest I'm going to say today. So if you check out now and you've made enough notes, great. You've got it, right? It's the the sense of it's really you. I get it. I get it now. And this passage is used really often as a picture for the Christian life, okay? Normally, whenever you hear it preached on, it's used as this kind of I, I, idea of, of the wandering, the disillusionment, the struggling, the searching for help, the meeting a revealed Jesus and how his word is impacting and it impacts us warmed hearts and a desire to share it with other people. That's normally the angle that's used when we come at this passage. So perhaps maybe you're thinking it's a little bit of a strange passage for what I'm going to say today on worship. Because the Easter theme, as we talk about the resurrection, has this kind of touch point on worship, on worship, through this story from Luke, because worship is a key piece in the life of a resurrected people, right? Our worship of the God that we trust should become resurrected too, shouldn't it? If he is raised... If he really is who he says he is, then surely it would make some difference in our own worshiping lives. As Jesus is raised to life, we live in light of this resurrection in the community of the church. As Helen was saying last week, this community of devotion and fellowship together. Worship becomes one of the places that this resurrected life takes hold of our own lives. And we need it, don't we? When you think about it, we Need it Because worship, whether we like it or not, has become a thing in the Christian church, hasn't it? Like worship is a thing. Like the second, you know, as somebody that has led worship for years, the second you walk around a church building with in-ear monitors in, people are like, wow, Dave has graduated onto the higher plane of spirituality. He's got in-ear monitors in. And that's kind of how we feel about worship stuff, isn't it? It's become a thing lights, sound, all of the stuff that goes with it, they become a thing. It's not real worship if it doesn't look like x, y, and z, and that's just the song bit. If we started pushing beyond that, it just keeps going and going and going. And for a resurrected people, worship so easily can become a number of things, right? It can so easily become mechanical, can't it? Like, become cerebral, over-explained, mechanical. One commentator writes this, we verbalize confessions, we explain hymns, and worst of all, we beat the Lord's Supper to death with explanation on top of explanation. No wonder people are bored. If we're not careful on one hand, worship becomes mechanical. But equally on the other hand, we can often make it just too much about the expression itself, right? It's all very touchy-feely, and if it's not expressed like this, well then, you know, people mustn't be really worshipping. Did you see how few hands were in the air today? Worship is not going on in the building, right? We become about the expression, romantic, momentary, high, too much about what we see on the outside, and speaking from the heart rather than talking about the substance of it. Worship can easily become one of these two things. We need it. We need it so badly to find our worship life resurrected too, don't we? We need to learn all over again to hold on one side to the remembrance aspect of what it means to worship. That part of us that longs to tell the story of who God is and what he's done. And then on the other hand, hold the tension of the hope, right? The faith, the belief, the expectation that the one who said it's finished isn't finished yet with our lives, this world, as we seek the kingdom and anticipate the eternity that is to come. We've got to hold those two tensions, don't we, whenever we worship as we pray, as we sing, as we live all our lives in devotion to God. We need to hold those two tensions. So what is the passage today speaking about whenever we're talking about worship? Well, I just want to suggest two things today as we dig in. In the resurrected life, worship is where Jesus is present, and worship is where we come to life. In the resurrected life, it's where Jesus is present, and it's where we come to life. So our passage today, okay, it starts with two people walking to Emmaus, all right? One of them is Cleopas, that's what it says. The other is unnamed. It's possible uh, that this is actually somebody called Mary because a person called Clopas appears in John 1925. They're quite similar names, right? Cleopas and Clopas. It's possible they're the same people. He is married to somebody called Mary. So it's possible that these are the same people walking the road to Emmaus, We can't be sure of that, but what we can be sure of is the mood on the journey, right? We can be sure of how they're feeling in these moments. Verse 17 tells us they're downcast. Verse 21, they're disappointed. Verses 22 to 24, they're utterly bewildered. So we've got a good idea about how these people feel, whoever they are, as they travel. And they're devastated because of what has just happened. That's what they say whenever Jesus asks them, okay? Just three days ago, Jesus was put to death on a cross. And these two were still very much living in the light of those events. And the thing is, right... In that culture at that time, death was a pretty effective tool in the in the toolkit of your standard empire. Right? Nowadays, whenever like a nation state does something wrong, like Russia, for example, did like the poisoning thing in Britain, what did Britain do? Like they really taught them a lesson. It's like we're going to put economic sanctions on Russian produce. You know, it's like they do things like that. Back in those days, nah, they just killed you, right? And it turned out that that's quite an effective way to to wrangle control of people. Is if prison didn't work, if. If threats of violence didn't work, if economic oppression didn't work, well, death tends to be quite effective, right? So Jesus has been put to death. That's how they tried to quash what he was doing, tried to quash that movement. They thought that would kill it dead by killing him dead. And Jesus, they thought, was dead. They probably had seen it. After all, they had been there. They were able to graphically describe all that had gone on. Crucifixions tended to be a fairly public spectacle, like people came out, and it was also the Passover, and and it would have been quite a famous event in that culture. At that time, they'd probably seen it. And their belief was that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming to free them, right? Right? He would be the one to redeem Israel. Just like the exodus of old that they knew the stories about out of Egypt all those years before. But this time it was for good. Liberated from the domination not just of this Roman Empire. But from the many empires who had ruled, risen and fallen. And pushed down the people of God through through centuries of time. That's why the cross was so devastating to them. In that moment, it wasn't just that Jesus was the bearer of their hopes, right? Because that would be devastating enough if he was your hope and, and, and he died. It was sharper than that. If Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, then he should have been defeating the pagans, not being killed by them. Remember, death like that on a cross equals oppression. In other words, so the one who came to free them from oppression turned out to be subject to it just like everybody else. That's how they were feeling on the road that day. They were dislocated, right? That's probably the best word I can think of to describe it. Not just dislocated in themselves, from their own hopes, from their own kind of dreams of what was going to happen. But the passage says they're walking to Emmaus, right? So they're walking away from Jerusalem, away from where all their disappointment had played out, but also away from the community of the first believers, away from what God is doing in that time. They're walking away. They're dislocated. They're dislocated in themselves, in, in the movement of what God was doing in the world at that time. In other words, they were doing what we so easily do in the times of our life when it's hard and we're disappointed. We run away, don't we? We run away. We hide. We run until we're alone. We retreat. We run away from the community that we're called to share with them. We arrive at church on Sunday and somebody says, how was your week? And you go standard Northern Ireland on them and you go, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, you're good. Dying inside about the stuff that's going on in your life. Desperate to tell somebody that you're disappointed about a job opening that didn't work out. Or a relationship that's broken down. Or whatever it is in your life. And you say, yeah, yeah I'm good. Deflect. Hide. Retreat. Dislocate and then Jesus joins them. This is what it says. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and as they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. And just like that, right there in the middle of their pain in their heart, right as they shared their disappointment and their loss and defeat, Jesus was there with them. How incredible is that? They' just seen him die a couple of days before they're devastated, so devastated that they're like they're leaving. and then he shows up with them on the road. And yet they don't recognize him. The one, who had put, the one they had put all their hope in at that very moment, maybe the most famous name on everyone's lips. After all, they tell Jesus himself, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there, right? So he's like, how did you not know? Everybody knows they're talking to the person who himself was the guy they're talking about, Right. My dad often talks about how, in the late 80s, Terry Waite was just about the most famous name in kind of news publishings at that time, okay? The reason for it was that he worked for the Church of England and he made several trips to Lebanon, okay, and, and he did that in an effort to help Westerners who had been taken hostage by Islamic fundamentalists escape or, or kind of get them out of captivity. And so he did that several times before eventually, in 1987, he himself was taken hostage, okay. And this was like a huge news story. And, and Terry Waite spent 1,763 days in captivity before he was later freed. So this was like big news, okay, like massive. I mean, most people thought he was dead. They didn't know what was going on. Surely the worst has happened to him. I mean, that's a significant period of time in captivity. And then he's freed. And there was a huge kind of news story told on media outlets. The world over, his, his voice, you know, we have got to remember back in those days, that was like radio, okay? So everyone listened to the radio more than they do now. His voice is all over the radio. He was very recognizable. And then one day, my dad is in the house uh, in East Belfast where they lived at the time. Phone rings. My dad answers the phone, hello? And this person says, hi, my name's Terry Waite. And, uh, and he starts to talk to him about some stuff. And dad goes... Pfft. Terry Wait. You're 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 like you're having a laugh and it's all like Terry Wait. I mean as if Terry Waite's phoning me right now, right? And this no 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 no, I'm I'm Terry Wait and continues to talk to him and he's like and dad's like running through Billy Manson, is this you? Stop you know, stop trying to pull my leg. I know this is a joke, and this goes on and on and on, right? And eventually like he asks for directions to somewhere, dad says, Okay, well it's just there. (laughs) Comes off the phone and is like, Christine, some balloons just phoned me and said they're Terry Waite. And mum's like, John. Terry Waite is in Belfast today for an event. It turns out it was the actual Terry Waite phoned him, right? And he'd been listening in, like, with intent because he was really fascinated. He'd been listening to his voice again and again and again and again and again. And then Terry Waite phones him and he's like, you're not Terry Waite. Because sometimes it's possible, isn't it? For the one that we're looking for, the one that we're listening to, the one whose hope we're placing our hopes in, to step really, really close to us, And for us not to notice that it's them. And they don't notice him. They don't recognize him. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe these two are just so disappointed, so absorbed in the hurt and the loss they're feeling that Jesus walks with them and they don't see him at all. Maybe it's because they're just so inward in that moment. They're hurting. They don't see that it's Jesus himself. Goodness knows we can relate to that, right? Relate to how Jesus could be right in the midst of your workplace, right in the midst of your family life, changing people's lives, speaking to them, moving. Uh, Maybe it's even that boss that you don't like, but he's healing, restoring, doing something in their life. And just because you're in the middle of your stuff, you just don't see it. They didn't see it. But what if there's something more going on, right? Because this isn't the only time this happens, okay? Three times it happens in the Gospels that Jesus, risen Jesus specifically from the dead, approaches people who follow him and they don't recognize him, right? In fact, the passages normally say that they were kept from recognizing him. So something's going on that they don't see that it's Jesus. What's that all about? Well, perhaps it's this, right? So our travelers tell Jesus about all that had happened as they saw it. And then Jesus says this in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is significant, right? Because Jesus is saying to them in that moment. He doesn't just give them this like bit part little story of like, you know, the, the scripture said this, but then they said this. He's not like hopping around, you know, like taking texts, like proof texting is what it's called. He's not doing that at all in this moment. He's giving them the big picture. Perhaps somewhat similar to how we tell and try to tell the big picture stuff all the time about how that from the beginning to eternity, God's plan is the renewal of all things. Instead of just saying like, you sin, Jesus went to the cross and then there's heaven. That's not the whole story. The whole story is that from the start to the end, God wants to renew all things. Maybe that's what he did because the cross had happened. Jesus had been crucified. And the thing about that was so many stories told them that was going to happen. That's what he said. Do you not know what the prophets have said? Did you not think that the Messiah had to suffer these things so that he could enter his glory? Like he's saying to them, did you not read the signs? We've talked about it. The prophets talked about it. The scriptures outlined that it was going to happen. And now it's happened and you're telling me it's happened. But still you don't see that it needed to be this way. They were so crushed because they had been expecting a Savior to save them from suffering when all of the prophecy pointed to a Savior who saved them through suffering. They were looking for a God who would take them out of it all and instead what they got was a God who went right through the heart of it all. They didn't recognize the events that happened as the story of God's redemption plan and maybe that's why they didn't see Jesus either. They didn't see how all the pieces came together. And maybe that's why they didn't see him either. And maybe when you think about it, that's why we don't see him. Even though he's right there, right? He says, we're two or more gathered. I'll be there also. So he's here right now. The Bible says on something like 29 occasions explicitly, Jesus says, I am with you. He's with us. He's present here. Maybe we don't see him because we don't recognize the whole story from Genesis to Israel to Jesus and his kingdom and how our lives fit inside it. Maybe we don't see him because we settle for half stories rather than the whole story, the whole truth over this world and over our lives. You don't see him because half truths are easier than the whole truths, right? So for example, it's easy to believe at times that you aren't good enough because that's true, Right? But that's a half truth because the whole story is that he is good enough and he has done enough. So we hear the narrative that Christianity is just about love, for example, rather than knowing that it's about a relationship with a living God who is love. We want to just quietly trust when the call is to visibly, totally follow. We settle for a longing after a God who's out there somewhere instead of cultivating lies with Jesus who is right here. And our worship is resurrected when we realize that he is present. He's right here. He's right up close and personal in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our striving, our distractions and our disappointments. He's been here all along. The God of the whole story. You know, as you read the two travelers' words about all that happened, it strikes me. that worship in the resurrected life is not about reciting over and over again things about God. It's not about just talking over and over again, telling him things that he already knows about himself, right? It's not about like repetitive recitation of things like that because he's right there. He's right there. Worship in the resurrected life is about life with him. It's not about telling him about things about himself. It's about life with him. And by telling him about the things that are going on in your life, the things that he's doing in his life, the things that you're thankful for, the things that are stirring in your heart, the things that are being healed, the things that he's challenging, the stuff in your life that's shifting and moving, the stuff that you're struggling to let go of, the stuff that you're struggling to grab onto, he's right here. It's not just about living a life that speaks about him, it's about living a life that speaks of life with him. He's right here. Now, what would you want to say to him? He's right here. All your disappointments, all your fear, all your hopes, all of the things that are stirring in your life, he's here and that should make all the difference in the world. It's about putting your words to and bringing shape with your whole life to the things God has done, is doing, and is stirring in your life and wants to do in this world because he's here and it makes all the difference in the world worship is about worship in the resu- resurrected life is about his presence with us but finally it's also about where we come alive Worship in the resurrected life is where we come alive. So this is what happens next. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? while well, he talked with us on the road, and he opened the scriptures to us. So this stranger who was with them sits down with them and begins to break bread, and all of a sudden, these travelers get their I get it moment, right? Up until now, they haven't got it right now, they get it. They get it. They get it. It's Jesus. It's really Jesus. And then I imagine if it was them, I'm like, I feel like a total balloon. I just told them loads of stuff about him and he was here the whole time. Like I could have said loads of things to him. Instead, I just said, did you know that you yourself got crucified? Like I would have, if that's me, I'm like, I'm an idiot. Jesus has been here the whole time, right? But he's been there. They get it all of a sudden. And if the first interaction in the road is marked about how it was kind of head led, right? It was like a head thing going on. Then this one is all about what's happened at the heart. This one's all about what goes on at the heart. Now, this is Northern Ireland, okay? What tends to happen uh, when you lead a church and when you're speaking or you're leading worship or whatever is that you notice people's reactions, right, in moments like this, okay? Like we're speaking now or when you're leading worship or as somebody comes to faith or whatever is going on, you tend to see all the little reactions. Everyone's smiling now. It's brilliant, right? You tend to see what's going on out there. Like you watch a thousand explosions very often go on inside people's hearts as they meet Jesus for the first time or they experience healing or God moving in their midst or even just a truth Kind of taken root for the first time in a moment like this on a Sunday, and you can tell it's happening because, like, you know, their facial expression is sort of vaguely moving. You can see that underneath the surface, it's like stuff is going on, but on the outside, this is Northern Ireland, so people go, "Hmm." And if you're like really doing well, you get like, "Hmm." They nod, right? As you do sometimes, whenever, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not asking for you to go full-blown Pentecostal, right? I'm not asking for that. I mean, one day it would be epic if all of you were like, amen, Jesus. And I just want that to happen once, right? But I mean, I get it. It's Northern Ireland, right? Maybe a nod is the best we can ever hope for, okay? Stuff going on in the heart. Outward expression. Keep it, keep it. Like, you know, just, just calm, just chill, right? That's what we all do. But that's not what happens here. Jesus sits down. He breaks bread with them. They get it. Like, it's Jesus. He was, it's, it's really him. All the prophecy that he would rise from the dead. We saw him die. We were devastated. And, and now he's back. It's really, it's really you. You're, you're really here. And then what do they do? Verse 33. I thought my microphone was going to die. I don't know what that noise is. Anyway, verse 33, this is what it says. They get up. And returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then, as the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread, they go. They are like gone immediately. The second after Jesus disappears, they are on the road back to Jerusalem because something in them just came to life. You know what, in the cluttered marketplace of what it means to worship, Luke is basically showing us what it means to worship God. This is a worship passage because Luke is saying what worship is and how it's important that that's the place of coming to life because what are the things that happen in this passage, right, as you review when you're looking at it now? Number one, we gather together, Jesus is here. Number two, we hear about the good news. Jesus opened the scripture on the road, gave them the whole story, right? Number three, they broke bread together. And number four, they go and do something about it. That's worship, right? At the core of what it means to worship God, that's what it is, right? No smoke or mirrors, no kind of big noise, none of that sort of stuff. That's what it means to worship, right? We gather together. Jesus is here. We open the scriptures together. We kind of rediscover what God's saying through the scriptures. We break bread as a community together, and then we go and we do something about it in the world. That's worship. worship. And the thing is, that sounds simple, but the point is that is is where the life is, right? Because worship is performative, okay? Worship is performative. What do I mean when I say that? I mean that just the act of worshiping God does something to us. It transforms us. It transformed them. After all, right, you could say whenever you look at that passage and say, well, of course they were propelled out. Jesus just broke bread and was sat right in front of them, right? Of course, I mean, if I sat down and Jesus was right in front of me, of course I would also be like, I'm going to hit the road. Jesus, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. The point is, where did they say their hearts started to burn? Their hearts started to burn when they were on the road and Jesus opened the scriptures. It's not around the table. It was on the road when their hearts started to burn. But it was at the table when they finally got it. I mean, just look at Cleopas and his companion, right? At the start of our passage, they were walking slowly, dejected, disappointment, walking away from Jerusalem and what God was up to. And then as they meet Jesus on the road, the scriptures are open to them. They break bread. They begin to worship. Now they are running back with purpose in their hearts and Jesus on their lips. They were dislocated. Now they're transformed. And worship was the key. They were dislocated. neither transformed. What happened in between? Worship. Worship did. You know what? We were in London uh, in the summer. And in between, you know, visiting all of London's finest hipster coffee shops. Because, you know, like Instagram life and all that, right? In between all of that and the scorching heat. At one point, as we are on our way from, like, I don't know, ozone to, like, caravan coffee, right? Like, walking through London. At that point, we walk past... Uh, we, we walk past what looks like just like a kind of fairly standard, like old building. And as we're walking past, a, a plaque on the wall catches my eye. And I kind of stop and I, I walk back and I look at the plaque and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that just said John Wesley. And I'm like, hold on a minute. We're outside John Wesley's house, right? So we go back, and and it's John Wesley's house, okay? And I retold the words of his own journal, okay? Which, speaking about the events of the May 24th, 1738, okay? This plaque outside had these words on it. This is what it said. In the evening, and these are John Wesley's own words. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistles to the Romans, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Worship. Because worship is the place where our hearts come alive, our hearts start beating a little bit faster, where not our hearts burning within us, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us, is what the two say. And that sound a little bit like what happened to John Wesley. Was not my heart warmed? Did not our hearts start to beat a little faster? How? How does that happen, right? Because in unpacking the scriptures, the big story of the Bible and the road and then revealing himself to them around the table, Jesus had essentially done two things with these two people that day. He'd revealed that life has a purpose and a meaning, right? He'd broken down the whole story, you know, from start to finish again to say, like, this is God's plan. This is what God's been up to. This is, you know, Jesus' part in it, right? So he'd shown them that there's purpose in life. And then whenever he shows up to them at the table, he's basically saying to them, that purpose is only in me. He's saying... All of this, this is my purposes. Now you see that it is only met in me and their hearts burned and they came alive. You know, worship is not a program or some mechanical repetitive march. Neither is it some expressive shape, the momentary high. It's the communication of a real and genuine transformation of a person's heart and outlook. That's what it is. And the point is that the life, right, the transformation is in the doing, right? Right? The transformation that we want is in the doing. We proclaim the transformation, the faith, the hope, the expectation, and the truth that we're believing for, don't we? Don't we? So, in that last song that we were just singing right there, just a few minutes ago, before I got up to speak and Jimmy was leading, and we're singing that all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing, Great are you, Lord, right? we are proclaiming the expectation and the hope that we long to see, aren't we? Graham Tomlin writes this in his book. This new reality brought about by Jesus where the powers of sin and death and hell are overcome, get this, is to be demonstrated by a community that learns to live as if that is true and in doing so, finds that it is true. We are the community of the church that learns to live as if this is true. And as we do, it finds out that it is true. And that's what worship is, right? It's performative. We speak out, we live out in such a way that believes the stuff that we say we believe and in so doing, we find out that Jesus is all that he says he is, right? Because when we begin to step out in faith, goodness knows lots of you will have done short-term mission teams before. The great thing about short-term mission teams are that it's ninety-nine percent certain that someone's going to make you do something that you do not want to do on a, on a short-term mission team, right? Like they're going to say, "And and now Marcel is going to lead us in prayer," and you're like, "Oh." But you have to do it, right? Because it's a short-term mission team. You've got no choice. Or someone's going to come up to you and say, will you pray for me, right? Normal default setting is uh, the ministry team is over here. On short-term, ministry, on short-term mission team, you're like, right, all right, okay, I'll do it. And then you have to do it, right? And so often in life, I find with people in those contexts, in those positions, when they do it, God tends to, to do the things that they're asking for. Why? Because he is there. The point is that we so rarely do the sorts of things that actually matter to believe and to choose to know and to act in such a way that if, that if he's not there, this is doffed, right? Because we are to live in such a way as if this is true and in so doing find that it is true. He is here. He's here. And this is where we come alive. This is where we come alive. That's what worship is all about. These two on the road that day experience an I get it moment in their lives. And maybe right now, and maybe just not even right now, but in this season, you're coming through an I get it moment or a series of I get it moments about stuff maybe God is doing in your life, is speaking to you through his word or through the community of people that are around you or or just challenging you, right? Just that sense that God's on my case about something and he won't let up and it's kind of wearing me down in a little way, right? You know, I think we've probably all, or or maybe, maybe not, but maybe I, I know certainly for my life and lots of other people have been in that position where like God's just wearing me down until eventually you're like okay I'll do it right I'll go and do it I get it now right and maybe that's one of those seasons for you maybe you're there right now maybe this is a eureka moment about Jesus because worship in the resurrected life It's about beginning to know and understand and believe for the fact that he is present. He's here. And that in that place is where we come alive when we begin to learn to live. As if the stuff is true. We find that it is true. Worship is performative.